Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you're blessed by this podcast, please subscribe. Once you do, you'll be able to stay up to date with all our latest messages. This week, we're joined by our special guest, Pastor James Cadiz of Calvary Chapel, Signal Hill. We look at the Apostle Paul's perspective on heaven and how we should hold on because Jesus is returning soon. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I have to say, uh, and I call it, I'll call it a bit of a family conversation because, you know, the focus of our Sunday nights, and it's one of the things that I love about the 412 church, one of the philosophies that Tom has that I just really, really love, uh, tends to be the night where we focus on prophecy-related issues, right? And I think that it's important that we spend tons of time talking about the signs of God, Christ's return. It's important that we talk about the things that are happening around us, and there's a lot of those things taking place, and a lot of things that we should be talking about on a regular basis. Um, and I am one of those guys that will always be the first to have a discussion about that. But I thought that today it would be appropriate, and I do believe this is appropriate for the subject of end times, to have a little bit of a conversation about heaven. And, and I will say this. I will say that um, this is the time of year for me where heaven becomes, and it's hard not to get emotional, but this is the time for me where heaven becomes something that is on my mind a lot, right? I think about it a lot. Um, it's, it's interesting because what... Uh, when I was here last time, it was a few weeks ago, I remember uh, driving home and it was that night that Sam lost his other son. And I was just broken hearted to hear the news. When I called him and his bride uh, the next day, I just, it's, it's hard not to get emotional thinking about it right now. And I knew what week I was going into because we had, of course, the memorial service, which was beautiful. That guy is... Um, crazy as the day is long, just like me. I'll just tell you that right now. He really is. Um, but I cannot believe that he just had the, the, the strength and the courage to get up here and to do that memorial service himself the way he did. I think that's part of what makes him as crazy as the day is long. That's why we get along so well, because we're two peas in a pod, two very crazy peas in a pod. But I will say this. I was thinking a lot about that you know, thinking a lot about the changes that took place for that young man that at one point he was um, in his vehicle and the next point he was hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And, and I think about uh, this week, this is a tough week for me. This is a really hard week for me of the year because September the 2nd, 2014 was the worst day of my life. That's when um, I found out or I was there uh, when it happened, my mom went to go be with the Lord. And then September the 6th, 2014, is when I officiated her memorial service. And uh, that was a tough one to do, officiating your own mom's memorial service, especially when you're a mama's boy, right? And then um, September 11th, believe it or not, is her birthday. And so, um, I, matter of fact, it is interesting. When September 11th, 2001 happened, my dad was not in the country. My dad and my brother, John, were actually in Egypt. And the way they found out that, 2000, uh, that, that, um, that September 11th had taken place was they were woken up because people in Egypt in the middle of the streets were celebrating and praising their false god, Allah, for the destruction that took place in the United States of America. Very interesting story. And my dad, because of the flight situation, my dad and my brother were stranded for about a month. 
they couldn't get back into the United States for at least that long. And so it was such a unique memory of mine, a unique time. And so there's a lot of, there's a floodgate of emotions that kind of go through your mind when, uh, when you think about things like this. And it's funny to me because I think about heaven and I, uh, I consider oftentimes uh, the implications of what heaven is. And there's lots of people that spend a lot of time doing a series of Bible studies on the subject of heaven. I know Tom had done one roughly four years ago, five years ago. He did, I think, something like a 10 or 11 week series on the subject of heaven. And I think that those are very needed. I think those are necessary type of uh, Bible studies that come forth. But it's interesting to me because if you ask me as it relates to the subject of heaven, my heart and my idea and my philosophy centers more around what Paul's philosophy and discussion concerning heaven was. And um, we'll talk about that in just a second, but I do think that it's important to consider one variable. You know, the reason why we are so excited about prophecy and the reason why end times discussion is so important to us and so very real is because we know it means Christ is coming back soon. And then knowing that he's coming back soon is exciting to us because guess what? We know heaven is around the corner. And heaven's going to be a cool place to be, right? It's going to be a place that we all long for. It's a place that we're all excited about. It's a place that we all have such a limited understanding of. And there's a reason why we have limited understanding. We're actually going to get into a little bit of language uh, discussion here as we go into 2 Corinthians chapter 12 because there are some unique language issues that take place in the original language that we'll talk about. But I think about the idea of heaven and the Bible's description of heaven and I just think, you know, truth be told, the Apostle Paul was right. You cannot do justice to the description of what awaits. So I figured that today we'll talk about it from the Apostles Paul perspective. And, and I think that it's appropriate, not only as we have the discussion of heaven, that we couple that in with the discussion of many of the personal trials we face on this earth, because Paul did it, so I think it's appropriate for us to have this conversation. And I want you to know the theme of this discussion the whole way through is hold on, it won't be too much longer, Christ is returning. Okay, think about that, all right? Hold on, it's not gonna be too much longer, Christ is returning soon. Don't forget that fact, okay? So with that, we're gonna jump into it and we'll talk about what he says. Now, a little bit of context here for the discussion. The Apostle Paul is uh, getting a little upset. You can see it. It's a pretty rare portion, a rare side of the Apostle Paul as he's writing a letter to the church in Corinth. And um, one of the things that he tells them is, uh, well, he says a bunch of things, but among those things, one of the things that he says is he says, listen, I raised you up in Christ. I'm the one that made an investment in you. I'm the one that busted my tail. I'm the one that didn't take any advantage of you. I didn't take money from you. I didn't uh, uh, abuse you in any way. I didn't fleece you. I didn't run you down the wrong way. Truth be told, I'm the person who birthed you in Christ. And he's actually going to say a little bit later on, I'm the guy who espoused you to Jesus. In other words, he puts himself in the picture of a father right, who is uh, bringing his daughter into an arranged marriage, you of course being the church, you and me, we are the daughter, right, the church in Corinth, he's saying you're the daughter that I have espoused you to Christ. And he says, I want you to understand that because the more I love you, it seems as though the more you tend to not love me. 
And the more I pour into you, it seems as though the more you listen to these guys that want you to have itching ears and to lie to you, the more truth that I tell you, the more you seem to listen to the fake news. And he says, I want you to understand that what you need to hear, what you need to believe, what you need to listen to are the words of sound doctrine that has been taught to you because it's those words that are going to yield what is a return that will last forever. Now, they don't get that. And they're not seeing that right now. And so he has just finished giving them, giving them a pretty good slapping, so to speak. He gives them a pretty good rebuke. He's going to light them up again in chapter 13. He'll do a, a, a little bit of that again. But if you think about what's being said and what's happening, the discussion that he has with them is significant because he's basically saying, I'm your daddy, you're my child, and I care about you like nobody else except the Lord. So you got to listen to me. So he just finished boasting about his qualifications because there was a bunch of people running around saying, hey, this guy's a nobody. He's weak. He's not even here. He, you know, is he even really an apostle? And of course, the apostle Paul is saying, yeah, I am. And this is why. And these are the, the, the giftings and the call that God has placed on my life. And then he says something very interesting. By the way, it might read a little bit weird in your Bible because... Um, I think this is one of those very difficult situations in the Bible where the original language can be remarkably hard, right? You have a few problems that you run into with original language in the Bible, just so that you know, and uh, probably something that you might want to make yourself aware of if you're not already aware of, and that's the fact that you've got a couple of barriers to run into. Now, we don't have a lot of time to have a discussion about language, so we won't, but one of the big issues you should know, there are two major issues that we run into. There's several more, but there's two big ones that stick out here, right? Number one, you're using language that has not been used in thousands of years. So if you're using language that has not been used in thousands of years, there are going to be things that are going to be missed in the translation, okay? And even if you understood that language perfectly, you have to understand that language morphs considerably fast as things progress in society. And I can give you an example. The way the English language have, has morphed has been substantial. It, is, it has changed so much over the last 25 years that there are things that we say today that if you were, most of you were, were alive 25 years ago, you would think that I was crazy saying it. Like for example, there's things I could tell you right now that would make absolutely no sense. If I told you I, I am somebody, you would be like, what the heck does that mean? Or if I said the president really is going off today on his tweeting, you might think I'm talking about something derogatory. What are you calling him tweety? He's going tweet, 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 right? We say things today that don't make a whole lot of sense. Don't make a lot of sense to people that would have lived 25 years ago. And language has changed. I can walk up to somebody and I could say right now, just in the culture and in the world we live, I could walk up to somebody who looks jaundiced and I could say, hey, bro, you're a little yellow, man. What's going on? And they would take that and go, oh, what's wrong with me? Or I could literally go down the street just a few blocks and I could say, you're yellow. And that guy would sock you right in the face because he'd think you called him a coward. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Language changes. It changes. I can walk into a, a, a house that's being inspected for cracks and I could go to the inspector and I could say, hey, what's cracking over here? And he'd say, well, I think the lateral portion of the wall, three feet adjacent from the uh, horizontal stabilization point of this wall is cracking. And, and then you could walk up to somebody, you know, somewhere in LA, you could go, what's cracking, homie? And it means something completely different, doesn't it? Right? If I go to Russia 
and I teach somebody the Bible, I can't have a translator sitting here by my side and telling them how I woke up in the morning to mow the lawn and it really wore me down. The translator would say, what is mowing and what is a lawn? Right? They just look at you super confused. So language morphs. And you have to imagine that if over a thousand years or 2,000 years or in some cases 4,000 years, you're trying to translate a language that's kind of dead and bring it into a modern day language, okay, it gets difficult. Now let's take it a step further. Let's say I get the translation perfect. And let's not even get into the difference between a dynamic equivalent and a word-for-word -word translation. We've talked about that before in the past. You can dig that up in some of my Bible studies. As a matter of fact, if you get into my introduction to the book of Hebrews online um, on, on our website, you can pull a pretty, good a pretty good lesson in language, Greek and Hebrew, okay? But let's assume you get past all of that stuff, every bit of it. And now you have a Bible that was translated into the English language in the year 1611 and then revised in the 1800s. And you open it up and you read a few words. Even that can be confusing. Like, for example, you see a phrase where it says, God is a terrible God. Now, with your handle of the modern day English language, that would mean the Bible is saying that God is really horrible. When in reality, it's the same equivalent of us saying, he's an awesome God, right? So we have language issues. Now, without getting into the technicalities of the first verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, there is a substantial language problem here where I believe the translators kind of got it wrong, okay? And some of your more modern translations might get it somewhat right, but I think it's a little off because you're not going to be able to understand it completely unless you understand the language itself, right? There's lots of phrases that we use in Middle Eastern language that I could say to my dad right now, but if I translated it into English, it would make absolutely no sense to you. It would sound dumb, it would sound boring, and it would sound insignificant. And we see things like this beginning to happen here, and so my job as a pastor who teaches you the word is to be able to help you understand where the language really needs a little bit more work for you to be able to understand what's happening so that you can grasp the communication and then it'll bring you to a place where it's a little bit more palatable and it's no reflection of your lack of intellectual capacity because I'd be willing to bet you that there's probably about 70% of the people in this room that are way smarter than even me. And that's not saying much, just to tell you right? It has nothing to do with that. It just has something to do with the fact that you oftentimes are not exposed to this world and not being exposed to this world, the mechanics of language and grammar, it can really cause us to make some real mistakes. So my job is to help translate that for you so that you can better understand it. So let's read what he says. Now, I like reading out of the King James only because I have a love for Elizabethan English. And um, oftentimes when I read it, I, I, I understand it the same way it was written when it was written back then. And then I oftentimes will change words around and, and explain it better. That's why I read out of the King James. It's not because it's the anointed translation or anything like that. As a matter of fact, I am very adamant to new believers that they should stay the heck away from a King James translation. 
translation, okay? They should run towards a New King James, or so there's some other really great translation. The, the, the HCSB is very, very good. The Holman Christian Standard Bible is very good. There's lots of great translations that are out there. NIV does a pretty good job. There's lots of good ones, but the bottom line is um, I like reading it because I just like the, the use of that language. The thou, though, thus, my friends, is kind of cool. Okay, so let's jump into verse one, and we'll talk about the language issue here. It says, it is not expedient for me, doubtless to glory, I will come to visions and revelations from the Lord. Now, without getting into the technical aspect of this, and there are a lot of technical issues that are going on, let me just simply tell you what he's actually saying here, okay? He's saying, look, it was necessary for me to brag for a minute. I needed to establish my credentials because you forced my hand to do it. But I don't think it's been very beneficial. I don't think it's been expedient. In other words, you have forced me to establish or declare the credentials that I have when in reality I didn't need to. And I can give you an example of men that have philosophies like this. My brother, who graduated with distinction from Drew Medical, you know where his degree is hanging right now? His degree is hanging in the hallway of my dad's house. He's a world-class scientist. He's respected as a doctor for his work in diabetes. And he doesn't give a rip what man thinks about his credentials, right? So the apostle Paul is saying the same thing. See, although my brother doesn't give a rip what man thinks about his credentials, he has to establish his credentials at times to be able to have the floor to do what he is called to do. He's the, one of the, at one, uh, broke the record, one of the youngest published scientists in the Journal of the American Medical Association. My brother is a very, very, very gifted man. And in order to do what he does, sometimes he has to establish his credential. So the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing. He's saying, look, you forced me to establish my credential, basically, to boast, even though I think it was superfluous. I don't think it was beneficial. But... With keeping that all in mind, let me tell you what God has been showing me. Let me share with you some of the visions God has given me, and let me share with you the insight he's given me as a result of the visions. Now, you would expect to hear some grandiose, and just this amazing, crazy vision. And in reality, what he's about to do seems so simple that it feels anticlimactic. However, let me explain by the time you get to the end of this study, you're going to realize that if any man was entrusted to be able to see heaven and describe it, he was the best man ever picked to do it in the history of the universe. Now, people will come to me and they will say, James, what do you think of these people that write books about heaven? They somehow had an after death experience, something like that, and, or uh, you know, one of these weird experiences. And Do I doubt that people have visions of heaven? No. In the Bible, we see examples of people having visions of heaven. I don't doubt that. I think it is biblical that people could do that. I don't think that when they write books about it, it's very biblical. The last time somebody asked me about one of those books, they gave it to me. They said, James, will you take a look at the book and give me your opinion? And I instantly wanted to just give it right back to them, but to be graceful and not be rude or whatever. I said, yeah, sure, you know. People give me books all the time to read. I said, sure. They came back to me about a month later, and they said, James, what do you think of the book? 
and I said, it has become one of my favorite books of all time. And they're licking their chops. They're excited that I said that. So they're getting ready to take notes. And I said, well, it's become one of my favorite books of all time because it's really thick and it makes a great drill stop when I'm in my shop and I'm looking to drill a hole. It keeps me from ruining my counter. And so you'll see it's a holy book for sure, right? But that's the reason why I like it. And then they get all offended and then they say, look, here's the deal. Read 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You'll know why I think that book is hogwash. Because look what the Apostle Paul says. Let's go over it really quickly. He says, I knew a man in Christ. It's interesting how he's describing himself. He is describing himself, by the way. <laughs> right? He says, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, such and one caught up to the third heaven. So he's very likely referring to uh, Acts chapter 14. And if you remember, uh, this is the time when he got stoned. And I'm not talking about the, I'm telling you when they threw the rocks at him, you know, where they tried to kill him. And um, he was pretty much unconscious. They thought he was dead. They dragged him out of the city, if you remember. And when they even dragged him out of the city, the people that were with him, that loved him, were mourning for him because they thought he was dead. I don't know if you remember that, right? And look what he says in verse three. He says, he says, and I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, only God knows or God knoweth. But this is what he says. And, and if you remember, he's probably talking about that time because he, what, what he's basically saying, more modern day, if you're understanding the history of his life and what had happened, is he's saying, man, I thought I was left for dead, so I don't know if I had this experience like where my, 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 my soul momentarily, my spirit momentarily left my body, or if it was a dream that I had or a vision, I can't tell you. All I know was that during this time, I had this vision of heaven. That's pretty much what he's, what, he's, what he's saying. And if you remember, he, that guy, is one strong dude. I mean, I, okay, I was with a friend of mine back east who pastors a large church. And he looks at me and he says, James, what do I do about these kids? I go, what kids? He says, I got young millennials on my staff. He says, I, know, I have no idea what to do with them. He says, what do you mean? And at that moment that I'm asking him that question, me and him are distracted by these two young kids who have their $8 cup of coffee in their hand. You know, their little hipster coffee, oatmeal, whatever it is that they drink in that kind of nonsense, right? And they've got their, you know what it is, they, they, they literally, their hands are free, they're drinking their cup of coffee, they're standing outside the window, and there's an older lady, God bless her, who has her purse around her neck. She's got her Bible around her arm with the, one of those handles and she's got a walker and she is dying to walk up the ramp so that she could get in and open the door. And these two little whatever are standing there and they're watching this lady reach for the door to try and open it so that she could get in. And I wanted to choke them. I wanted to choke these kids. And I looked at the, my friend who's the minister, one of my pastor friends, and I said, yeah, you mean like kids like that? Oh, thank God we don't have kids like that in ministry. And he said, well, those are two of my assistant pastors. That's what he told me. No joke. That's why I won't identify who he is. 
<laughs> There's a weak-minded mentality that exists amongst some of the younger generation. Now, if you're a millennial and you're in the room, please don't get offended. Just toughen up, okay? Just, just get tough about it, okay? Look, when I was a kid, they laughed at me if I asked for extra time off because I spent a few extra hours over here or over there. You know, be like the Apostle Paul. This is where I'm going with it. The Apostle Paul got stoned, left for dead, thrown rocks thrown at him. His friends are around him crying because they think he's dead. And he finally regains consciousness. And what does he do? He walks back in the city to preach the gospel some more. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I absolutely love it. He was hardcore, right? But there was something inside of him that drove him. Something that was more important than himself or his physical comfort or his physical condition. We'll talk about that in just a second. So it was during that time that he has this vision, okay? And this is what he says. He says, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one will I glory yet of myself. I will not glory but in mine affirmities. Okay, let's talk for just a second. That's all he says about heaven. He says, I saw heaven and it's illegal. That's what he says. It would be a crime for me to describe what I saw. Now I thought about this. How in the world can I demonstrate what's happening in the language here when he says something like this? Because we understand the rhetorical aspect of this statement, right? We say oftentimes it's a crime for something to happen when it's really not technically a crime, although it should be, right? Like, let me let you in on a little secret about my wife. My wife, like my dad and my sister, love their meat. Not well done, but charcoal, right? So we go to get a good steak. We go to get a good steak, and my baby tells the chef that's cooking right there, hey, I'd like it to be extra well done, and God bless this chef. He has a strong Hispanic accent. He goes, oh, you mean you want some carne asada? <laughs> yes, somebody who thinks like me. And he looks at me, he goes, you want it the same way? I go, no, I want it mid-rare, just nice and pink on the middle. Just go for it. It's a crime for somebody to eat their steak that way. I'm sorry. I say that to my wife all the time. What a crime that you're eating your steak like charcoal. Doesn't make sense. But there's lots of you out here in San Jacinto that like it because, I don't know, the heat? I don't know. It gets... So we say it's a crime, right? We say it's a crime. Like for me, it's an absolute crime for you to be in San Jacinto and not go to Stadium Pizza on the way home. It's a crime. I'm just telling you. He's not talking about it that way. That's not the way he's talking about it. It's not, that, it's not that kind of mindset that he's using when he says it would be a crime for me to say these things. I thought about it, and this is the way I, I, I can see it. Imagine a girl who's been blinded by birth. She's, she's never been able to see anything. She has a remarkably dedicated mother. And from the day her daughter was born and they realized that she was blind, she made a commitment to her daughter that she would be her ears, her eyes through her ears for her. So she would always figure out a way to describe what she couldn't see. So every day she would describe everything that she 
could see to her daughter who could not see. And so they would walk through the park and she would do her best to describe the grass and they would go through during the sunset and they would do their, their, she would do her best to describe the, the orange skyline and, and all of that, all of that kind of thing would go on. Pretty regular basis. Great. One doctor when she was six years old said, I think the other doctors have missed it. I'm a neurologist and I'm telling you she needs a brain surgery. We can do this brain surgery and I think I can restore her to sight within three weeks of the time she has this brain surgery. She can have her vision back. Well, she never had it in the first place. So mom and dad ponder it. They think about it. They pray about it. They say, let's do it. So this woman, this little girl has her brain surgery. So I don't know if you know this, but there's been more and more of these surgeries happening. And so when, the, when their vision is revealed to them for their first time, they oftentimes have a team of psychologists and people to help them with the overwhelming uh, stimulation that takes place when they open their eyes for the first time. So they did that. That was no exception. They take her to the park during sunset when things are a little calmer. There's not a lot of people out. The temperature is a little different. And so um, they take the patches off her eyes and she starts crying profusely without any kind of control. She just starts crying. And everybody's beginning to freak out. Oh my gosh, what's going on? Mom says, let me handle this. And she goes to her daughter and she says, baby, what's wrong? Why are you crying like this? Why are you out of control? And she looks to her mom and she says, mom, you never told me it looked this way. I never could have imagined how beautiful this looked. Now think about this, just think about this for a second. How do you describe the color orange to a person who's never seen orange, who's never had vision? How do you describe even a leaf of grass to somebody who's never seen it before? Let's do this. Try to describe a simple bird to somebody who's never seen a bird. Or a wheel. Think of the most simple object. A chair that you sit on. How do you describe that to somebody who's never seen it? So the first time they open their eyes to see it, they're so overwhelmed because their brain has no ability to be able to functionally associate everything they've been thinking their whole lives with kind of like the reaction that people have when they see me for the first time after listening to me on the radio for several years. <laughs> but it goes a different way. They freak out. <gasps> You're Pastor James? <laughs> yeah, I know. I have the perfect face for radio, don't I, homie? <laughs> you know. But in this case, in this case, you can imagine your whole life what something looks like. You can touch grass every day of your life. You can smell it. You can feel the heat of the sun beating on your face. You can feel the breeze and you can hear the birds and you can hear the ocean. But you will never ever be able to describe accurately what it is the first time you open your eyes. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's basically saying this. None of you, not a single one of you that's reading this, has vision right now. You've never seen heaven. 
and it's nothing like anything you have ever seen in your life on earth or anywhere else. So it would literally be a crime to seek to describe it. That's why when people come to me and tell me their pictures of what heaven was and their vision or whatever, I don't believe it. Because if the Apostle Paul, who is one of the most uh, remarkably articulate men that ever lived on the face of the earth, a man who could take remarkably complicated Hebrew principles and put them into Greek terminology, if he, somebody who had one of the greatest commands of human language who's ever lived in history, says it would be impossible to try and describe it to you because you've never seen anything like it. Those are not metaphorical words, folks. He's literal. Can you imagine? Look, I appreciate the discussions that we have when we go into Revelation and we talk about the holy city and we talk about the streets being paved with gold and we talk about all those types of things. But forgive me for saying those. Those are earthly references to describe something that you've never seen before. You never will until you get to heaven. You'll never understand it until you're there. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me something to look forward to more than any description anybody could ever give me, right? One of my favorite descriptions somebody ever gave me of heaven is one that I use often and I'm oversimplifying it. But I always tell people when they ask me what it's like, I say, do this. Imagine the one thing in life that gives you more pleasure than anything. For some people it's eating, for some people, whatever it might be. Think of the most pleasurable thing you have ever done in your life. Don't think about it too long in some cases, right? Heaven makes that look like garbage, like a bucket of vomit. It's the truth. It's the truth. So if you don't have more to look forward to after listening to the Apostle Paul's description here, I don't know what it's going to take. If you sit here with the understanding that human words can't even begin to describe the beauty of what awaits for you for eternity, oh man, let me tell you, it's amazing. It's amazing. I, I personally, and you, and all of us, have spent lots of time mourning for people that have gone to be with the Lord. When in reality, I think they're mourning for us. My mom would never in a million years come back to this earth. Christopher would never come back to this earth. Andrew would never come back, back to this earth. Lane would never come back to this Are you kidding me? Lane especially. He'd be like, you can keep my ranch. <laughs> I don't want it. All the people that we've known and loved throughout the years, they would never trade what they can see at that very moment for the garbage they lived in their whole life, for the slum. It's the truth. So keeping that in mind, Paul just describes the glory of heaven to you guys. Then he says this. Then he says, I think what's more important is for you to talk about my infirmities. Now, what does he mean when he says that? Well, let's go through it for just a second. He says, for though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth uh, me to be, or that which he beareth of me. So in other words, I'm not going to keep on going on talking about heaven, because first of all, I would do it in injustice. I can't describe it accurately, and all of you guys are just going to think I'm continuing to boast and be cocky and arrogant, so I'm going to leave it alone. But let me tell you something that is worth talking about. Let me tell you something that is worth boasting about. Look what he says. He says, and lest 
I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made, what? Perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that what? That the power of Christ, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then what? Then am I strong. So this is what he says. He says, you want to talk about something with real meat to it? Something that really matters, something that's important to boast about? Let me talk about what my physical condition. Now, we don't know what his physical condition was. When he says thorn in the flesh, the Greek word for thorn is not the little thorn that you see, like a little rosebud type of a thorn. And it's not even the same type of word that we use when they put the crown of thorns on Jesus' head. It's a type of word that describes a, 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 a tent stake, okay? Like the kind of a, a big metal piece that you would use to, to stake down a tent. So he says, I've got this big middle metal piece, this thorn that's sitting in my flesh. It's clearly metaphorical for a very real physiological condition. Clearly it is. And he's saying, I prayed to the Lord three times. Now, it doesn't mean he said, I prayed to the Lord, God, please remove this. Okay, let's wait. Okay, God, please remove this. Okay, let's wait. Okay, God, please remove this. No. The way this could be translated is, I literally dedicated three periods of my life praying that God would take this away from me. Now, there's a lot of things that people debate about in early church history regarding what this could be, right? Some people say that it could be his eye problem. Some people could say that it could be a walking problem. There's a lot of different things that people say that this was, and they debate all the time over what those things are, right? But in reality, it was a real physical infirmity, and it was one that was so overwhelming that it was enough to keep him from doing the everyday thing that he would choose to do. But here's the thing that encourages me, and you guys pay attention, especially for those of you guys that are dealing with infirmities like this, or you guys that are dealing with trials. For, thumb, for you guys that are in here that's saying, can't I ever get a break? It never stops. Let me explain something to you. I'll make this one statement, and then I'll move on to describe this. I have never in my life, ever, ever, ever seen God use a man or a woman greatly who was not first broken by him. I've never seen it. And I could go to a brother like Sam and I could say, bro, God has a great plan for you through what has been happening. No father is ever designed or mother is ever designed to survive their children. It's not normal. And I could go to him and I could say, God has a great plan for you. And that would mean nothing to him in the middle of the trial and in the hardship that he's going through. But for all of you who sit out there and you know nothing about his history, you know nothing about his life, you know nothing about his past. You know nothing about his current circumstances. You enjoy the benefit of his brokenness. Because he gets up and he projects 
a real mechanism that drives into the heart of people an awareness of the presence of God. Let me make you a promise that doesn't come without brokenness. It doesn't. It doesn't. When I first started the ministry, I was Mr. Self-Sufficient. I remember after being on staff for close to 13 years at Calvary Chapel Downey, you gotta keep in mind, I was a very confident person. I was doing 30 units a semester in Bible college. I graduated with my bachelor's degree by the time I was 18 years old. I was ready to go. I went in the ministry, I know more than everybody, I got this down, everything's gonna be good. When I started Calvary Chapel Signal Hill, you know what my philosophy was? I don't care if we don't have enough money in the tithe, I'll just write a check if there's a problem. That was my mindset. And God said, okay, let's take away your money. <laughs> Big deal. I've made and lost money all the time. I'll just go back and make more. And I did. Okay. Let's take away your health. Okay, that's a little harder now. Let's take away your confidence by allowing things to happen that cause you to question your very call. At one point in my life, I was almost 700 pounds and could stay on my feet for 14 hours. No problem. When I was in the Reserve Academy, I could get over a brick wall, a six-foot brick wall, easily at 400 pounds. No big deal. And if I couldn't get over the brick wall, I'd break the brick wall. <laughs> Didn't matter to me. Now, I'd be lucky, lucky, if I could get up a set of stairs without help. Most of my time, because of my nerve disease, I've got to spend in a mobility scooter because I can barely balance myself long enough to be able to even move at times. I hate every minute of it. I, my flesh can't stand it. Do you know how humiliating and humbling it is to ask people to do things for you that you should be able to do for yourself so easily? living in chronic pain and having to be able to, to, to just say, I'm gonna have to be willing to deal with it. Every single one of my doctors are saying, you know what, we just need to put you on narcotics. And me saying, I would rather go through excruciating pain for the rest of my life, my own personal choice, right? Than be so doped up, legitimately, that I can't think straight. It's not easy. It's not. But like the Apostle Paul, I can tell you with great conviction that I will brag in those infirmities on a regular basis, and I'll tell you why. Because in the most fundamental points of weakness in my life, in my body, in my mind, in my heart, God shows his strength. So when you see Pastor James teaching a Bible study, 
when you hear the radio ministry or you see God pour out his blessing in every way in my life, you'll never ever be able to say that's because of the accomplishments of Pastor James. You will always, always revert back to it's impossible for him to do that. The only explanation is supernatural intervention. May that be the prayer of our lives. God has so many wonderful things ahead of us. We boast in our infirmities because in our infirmities we find God bringing to us the greatest strength. All of us. And you know the cool part about sharing a Bible study like this? Before you're so quick to say, oh, James, you carry a great burden and what a cross you carry or whatever. Every single one of you have the same kind of infirmities. Let me say this, with the same level of intensity by which I experience it. You wanna know why I can say that with great confidence? Because each of us have different tolerances than the other, right? If you have a low tolerance to pain and you get a little nick on your finger, you're gonna feel as much pain as I feel with my finger being cut off. Either way, we're feeling the same pain together which is why I'm never, ever, ever desirous to go to the pain of another man and go, that's nothing, bro. Why don't you be man up a little bit, be like me. Hey, fool. <laughs> He's feeling the same pain you are, James. And people come up to me all the time, they go, man, Pastor James, I don't know how you do it, man. I, I, I have some pain, but I, it's not at the level your pain is, and I always kinda wanna like wash their mouth out with soap, right? Because what you feel is almost exactly like what I feel because of the tolerance differences that we have. And me and you, in mankind, as in all humanity, we all have the same mechanism for relief, strength, and power, and that is Jesus Christ. Right? Thanks for listening and being a part of this week's podcast. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to visit our website, hopeforourtimes.com, and check out the many resources we have to offer. On our website, we have books, DVDs, and daily news articles that will always keep you up to date on the times we're living in. If you'd like to see the video version of this week's podcast, you can find us at Hope For Our Times on YouTube. God bless, and we'll talk to you next time.